As always, our show is sponsored by Memoria Press. You can find our curriculum at memoriapress.com. Welcome to Classical Etc., a show from Memoria Press that dives into the philosophy, culture, and heart of classical education. You're in the studio with Shane Saxon. All right, welcome to another episode of Classical Etc. I'm seated with Paul Schaefer, Tom Skullthorpe, an old friend of the pod. Not that he's an old friend, but you know, you know what I mean, Martin. Martin Cawthorn. And on today's episode, we're talking about the pedagogy of math. So one time before we sat Tom down and we just had him explain to us everything there is to know <laughs> about the origins and the classical methodology of math. In this episode, we're going to change focus a little bit. Uh, we're going to talk about math as it's used in classrooms, how school administrators should think about math, how homeschooled parents should think about educating their parents with math, a little bit more of the practicalities of math education in a classical situation. But before we get there, Martin, have you been reading anything interesting lately? <laughs> um, I'm not sure if I'm reading it. Well, okay, yeah. I, uh, I'm reading Zorro. Oh. The, the original story by Johnston Macaulay um, that was originally called The Curse of Capistrano. Mm-hmm. And it has just has to do with, you know, it's a, a mask Avenger figure, one of the original mask Avenger figures. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and just... How I, I, I I'm reading it because I'm interested in this whole idea of how masks operate oh. in literature. You know, the, the 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 good guy who's in a mask, everyone thinks is the bad guy, and yeah, that sort of thing. So, I love it. Have you read it before? Uh, several times. What do you think of the film adaptations? I don't. Okay. What is on this topic of masks? Does that mean that we will be going to see the Phantom of the Opera with you? At some point. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to say, I have never seen The Phantom of the Opera, and I am actually not familiar with that story. I just, it just occurs to me that I probably need to watch that. Mm. Are, you, do you, are you open to musicals at all? Like, oh, yeah, I love musicals. Okay. Absolutely. Yes. Tom, you read anything interesting recently? I'm getting my uh, taste of Jane Austen. Oh, wow. Pride mm. and Prejudice. Mm. And then I'm, I plan to read Persuasion. And then okay. you know, I'm enjoying that. I've never read Austen before. What, seen, uh, seen the movies, you know, Pride and Prejudice, Sense and Sensibility. But sure. yeah. what caused you to want to read Jane Austen? Uh, well, it's one of my wife's favorites. Okay. And we typically read um, for pleasure together. Oh, wow. And, uh, and, and that coupled with the fact that I've en- I enjoyed the movie a lot, the, oh. uh, the Kira Knightley adaptation. Sure. I don't know. Well, now, now that I'm halfway through the book, I think, I think the adaptation was pretty good. Um, sure. Now, Sense and Sensibility, is that the uh, Emma Thompson? Yes. I, that's one of my favorite movies. Yeah. I love that movie. Yeah, that movie was good too. Yeah. All right. Paul, what have you been reading lately? Uh, most recent was Zorro because Martin roped us into a discussion on it, <laughs> which is happening soon. So I I turned through that one last weekend. Um, but it actually made me go, you know what? I need to read more swashbuckling tales every okay. once in a while. Listen to them. <laughs> yeah. I need to listen to them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because it, I mean, it made my day when I was just working on the farm listening to this, like it just made it go by so fast because I was completely enthralled in the story. And when you're reading the sort of the, the, the complex tales or the, or the classic tales, sometimes you don't get as deep into them because you're trying to figure out everything else that's going on. Whereas this is sort of a straightforward engaging tale, um, which in our, I think in our modern sort of world we expect that sort of engagement only in like movie form but but you can absolutely get it 
when read, and this one was read poorly, I got the LibriVox version, not the Audible sure. version. Uh, but I still, <laughs> but the story itself was still enthralling to me to the point that I even like hurt my shoulder clearing fence lines and didn't even realize it because I was just like, I was, I was more focused in the story that I was listening to than what was going on around well, me that I was like muscle memory doing. Yeah, that's yeah, dangerous it, on a farm. <laughs> if you're going to listen to the story, it needs to be the one read by BJ Harrison mm. that's available on Audible. That's the, that's the good audio. If you enjoy laughing about mispronunciations of Spanish words, the LibriVox versions. <laughs> I've read a few on. LibriVox books uh, using it just because, you know, they have a lot of things and it, some of them are truly terrible. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, some of them are decent. I, I thought it was decent, but I just, I had to laugh every once in a while yeah. by pronunciation sure. choices. Yeah. So well, you speak Spanish, Paul, right? So right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yes. But I, but I think anybody who, who, you know, lived in California and knows, you know, the pronunciation of place names would at least have mm. a little bit, but obviously this person seemed to be from Virginia or something. Sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> An Easterner. Yeah. Uh, and that's where the story, story takes place in Southern California. And, and I grew up in Southern California and I, I've been to all those places mm. that are mentioned in the book. Um, but it's back in the time where uh, the Spanish are running California mm. and of course not doing a very good job, job <laughs> of it. And, and they're really oppressing the church at that time. Uh, it's a, it's an interesting historical mm. period, dude. Yeah. But I, I noticed that none of you are reading books about math. Uh, no, not right now. <laughs> <laughs> I have a, I have a, a list of books, but unfortunately I teach too much. Yeah. I, <laughs> I get that. So let me, add, before we go into our math conversation, I, w- I want to ask each of you a question to set the table for anyone listening as they reflect on their own self as they receive this conversation. And that is, Martin, do you consider yourself a math guy? No. Um, whatever is the opposite of a math guy <laughs> is, is that's what I am. Okay. Uh, no, I'm very much a human humanities person, but I, I think there's, um, everybody has to have at least, uh, some, you know, I mean, the world is really split into two, two types of things, qualitative things and quantitative mm. things. And so, you know, Plato makes this argument um, in in uh, in one of his dialogues. About, I think it's in the Republic, actually, about the importance of mathematics mm. in order to understand the eternal forms. Uh, that that math education is absolutely essential. And he mm. goes through this whole thing on the quadrivium, the the mathematical arts, and how important those are. Um, to understanding ultimate things, because it, and that's in addition to other things he says about, it. but. Because you know half the 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 um, aspects of the world are quantitative, so yeah. so I, we have some obligation to to think about math and hopefully to think mathematically. Tom, are you a math guy? Um, <laughs> I, I'd I'd like to I I'd I'd rather say that um I'm a guy who enjoys math. Okay. I think that's better. Okay, what's what's the nuance there? Well, it's just less definitional. I don't, I don't want to be defined by that. Sure. The math guy. I'm more of a guy who enjoys um, learning. We and, know where his soft spot yeah, is. Yeah, I'm sorry. Now. I put you in a box, Tom. I, <laughs> I understand you're a well-rounded <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, uh, I think uh, I'm, I'm a guy who enjoys learning and teaching sure. uh, math. And I'm I'm certainly a, um, a quantitative analytical thinker. And so... Sure. So, and that's been the case since I was a child. Yeah. Paul, what about you? Are you a math guy? 
I think by affinity as a child, yes. By training and what I've spent my time on, no. So uh, that math is what I loved as a kid, and I just don't spend my time in it anymore, yeah. unfortunately. Except if it has to deal with sales tax or income tax or, um, you know, uh, that's you what know. accountants are for. That is, that the is practical what accountants side are for. Yes, yes. Yeah. The practical yeah. side of math is where I find myself spending most of my time when I'm dealing with numbers, yeah. and and numbers are are a daily part of my life. But it's, but it is a for me it's a skill rather than I don't I don't get to enjoy the the moments Tom gets to enjoy where he gets to contemplate math. Yeah. Unfortunately. So the reason I asked the question actually is because something I've observed about you three before we came to this table, and I think this is actually true of myself as well, is uh, I don't know if you guys knew this, but I actually competed uh, in math competitions in junior high. Did not know that. Um, did you so, win? Uh, you know, actually our team did uh, place in the top four nice. in Wisconsin. Uh, it sounds great for oh. a competition called Math Counts. Yeah. You guys have ever heard of this? I have not. Um, so my brothers mercilessly made fun of me calling me a mathlete all the time. <laughs> um, so I, I was always more inclined to the quantitative to math. But then when I went to college, I chose to study literature and I kind of chose the path of the humanities. Paul, you're, you, everyone knows you're kind of the IT guy. Knowledge man around here is one of the many hats that you have. You're clearly inclined to the, uh, the, the quantitative, but you're also a, a polyglot and have great insight into literature and kind of a humanities guy. Martin, your father was a astrophysicist, uh, aerospace, aerospace, aerospace engineer. engineer. Yeah. Um, and so, and you clearly have abilities in that area as well, but you've chosen the humanities and then Tom, you're doing a PhD in literature in old Testament literature. Um, but yet yeah, you're the math guy. So in some mm -hmm. ways that dichotomy of math people and humanities people is kind of broken by just even the four of us, we have diverse interests and diverse inclinations. And a part of that is education, taking people who maybe are deficient in one area and giving them the opportunity to grow and be well-rounded. So Tom, starting this discussion, what is the best way to teach children math? Are there particular ways to do it well? And are there particular ways to do it poorly? And I'm thinking specifically about in K to 12 education, what are the mm -hmm. principles of good ways to teach math? Um, okay. Well, first of all, um, uh, arithmetic forms the foundation mm. of math instruction, right? So, and that's because, um, you know, uh, Martin brought up uh, Plato, who who uh, I think saw the world as a mathematical one and thus uh, the necessity of, of quantitative reasoning um, in order to understand the world that we live in. And, uh, and, and so that's where math instruction starts. And I, and I think that, you know, for the, for, for arithmetic, as a discipline, um, it, it requires a lot of drilling, uh, a lot of, uh, acknowledgement of, um, fact, right? So we're going to learn these facts and learn these operations and how they work and, uh, and how numbers work together. Um, and I think the goal of that discipline is what, um, Brian would call a number sense. Mm. And Brian right. is in Brian Lowe. Who, yes, that's right. Who runs Memorial Press. Yeah, he's a math school. guy too. Yeah. Uh, him and I were math guys. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so, so a number sense would be uh, the ability to um, reason through arithmetic, reason with numbers at a high level. Mm. Um, 
and in in, in the in mentally mentally speaking. So uh, once once you have that foundation, now we can go on to more abstract disciplines like algebra and geometry, and then culminating in calculus. Mm. Um, I would I would like to see uh, all high schoolers learn calculus. Um, and I would also, uh, it, what, what I mean by that is, um, not necessarily a computational heavy approach, mm. but maybe a more conceptual kind of approach an, an approach that, that allows, um, all of our students to, uh, to understand a uh, rate of change and how that, uh, that problem, um, developed over time and was, was addressed over time. And uh, and how uh, what Isaac Newton did um, in in the Principia uh, addressed it and kind of and basically solved it for mm. all of our benefit. Um, so so I think a heavy emphasis on fact memorization on and and not just math facts but also definitions. Sure. Right. Properties. Um, and then uh, one of the things I'm teaching in algebra right now is how to conceive of math um, as a language. Mm. And so, um, you know, we can, we can read, um, a mathematical expression in algebraic notation, the same way you can read a sentence in English or in Latin. There are parts of mathematical speech that function as kind of as, as nouns and as verbs, as, um, as, as action, uh, symbols and, um, and, and things along those lines. Sure. So, and I, and I think that, I think that that's really helpful. I think it can help students who, are receiving a heavy, um, a heavy dose of, of grammar sure. and, uh, in, in Latin instruction and in English as well. So, so it seems like a predominant theme of what you're articulating is mastery, mastery yes. of arithmetic facts and then mastery of disciplines as they're defined. Martin, yes. Paul said before we sat down that you maybe even kind of got your start in education during the math wars, the new math. How was that new math or that agenda at the time? Kind of threatening the view of education of math that Tom was just articulating. Well, I was uh, involved, and in, this is where I met Cheryl Lowe, the founder of Memory Press. Uh, is in the education wars back in the early '90s. We were uh, a part of a sort of rebellion here in Kentucky against a big uh, piece of legislation. It was a it was the biggest education reform measure that any state had ever mm-hmm. passed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was filled with, as all education reform efforts that come along every 25 years or so are, are, are made up of, which is, um, which is, uh, this pragmatist stuff and this progressivist stuff. And the progressivist stuff is, is a lot of, of that, that the, the whole progressive agenda in these subjects, um, is, uh, in 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 reading whole word strategies that we we know don't work as well as phonics works, and in what has been called the new math, um, and and there was a book put out on this in 1973, I believe, by Morris Klein, which is very very descriptive and can be understood by somebody who's not a math expert, but but basically what he point what what he points out is that just as in the reading wars. Uh, in the math wars, what they're trying to do is to take uh, advanced concepts and, and put them down as low as they can mm. in the curriculum to very young levels where they have not mastered the procedures yet. 
um, the procedures are sort of the apparatus by which you can understand these more advanced concepts. So they wanted to take mathematical things and drive them down into the lower reaches of arithmetic. And for uh, example, like introducing like a variable in third grade. Yeah. Th- 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 something yeah, like that. Yes. Conceptual things before they mastered the basics and, and, um, and not, um, just not helping them master these, these procedures so that, to, so that they can use those to move on to the more advanced things. You, you, it's this, it's this, it's this uh, fallacy in education between the order of knowledge and the order of learning. Mm-hmm. The order of knowledge is what's the most important thing. The order of learning is what's the thing you do first. Mm. And they want to think that those are the same thing. They don't want to make that distinction. So they think the most important thing, which is the stuff later, obviously, the more advanced mathematical conceptual things, they want to teach that as early as they can. Um, whereas this is like reading, you know, you got to learn the letter sound correspondences. You got to, that, that's not really reading. That's just the apparatus for, uh, for making the sounds and, you know, that sort of, but it's what a mastery of that is what enables you to read. And if you don't master that, then in, in, in reading, it's going to prohibit you from, from knowing what a new word is that you've never seen before. Right. And in mathematics, it's going to be a problem if you don't know that, that, that operational thing, because then you're going to have to go back and grab a calculator or do whatever. And it's going to hamper you in understanding that more advanced thing. So sure. that was really what the math wars were about. So Paul, in, I'm thinking specifically of K-6 education right now, or K-7. Mm-hmm. What does it actually look like to have this mastery-based approach to math that Tom articulated in a homeschool setting or a school mm-hmm. setting or, I don't know, an online academy setting? Well, I think sort of the an essential component, you know, you need exhaustive lists if we're going to talk about that, right? But I think one essential component to highlight is that when we're talking about mathematical uh, education, we're talking about acquiring a skill. Mm. So, right. Tom's talking about learning to read mathematics as a language. Right. And so that th- this equation signifies a meaning to you in the way you read it. Right. And you've got action items and, and substantive, I- substantive items, things like that. And so in any skill, you, you master that by doing it again and again mm. and again. Right. You don't, become a champion figure ice skater by staying in the bleachers, right? You got to get out there in the ice, right? And so, um, you know, I mean, there was a time where we were discussing at Highlands, you know, how much homework should they have and and what should that look like? And one of the things that um, was sort of a non-negotiable was that a sort of non-negotiable, no, was a non-negotiable <laughs> was that they needed to do math exercises at home every night mm. because they they have to work that out for themselves. So it needs to be done in class again and again and again, but then outside of class, they need to work it again and again and again to, to, to finally get to that competence. So it's one thing to say, I understand what's going on. A student can legitimately understand what the operation of multiplication is without being able to actually multiply anything. Right. And so, in a, especially in a K to seven sort of uh, age range, like that, that's the, I mean, you, you need to do it past seventh grade too, because when you're working with a new concept in algebra geometry, like you need to do it again and again and again for you to get that, that, to master that skill, for that skill to become part of your soul. Um, and I think that's, that's sort of the number one mm-hmm. thing um, 
you know, I was recently having conversations with teachers about it because I could, I could tell in a class that, you know, they felt like they had covered the material. And I said, you, because you have this, this allotted amount of time, don't feel like you're filling the time by saying, well, let's do another exercise. Let's do another exercise. No, that's exactly what they need mm. is another exercise, another exercise, another exercise. Let's do another problem, another problem, another problem. And, and so that the student gains that skill. And so I, that yep. would be the, the major thing I'd so, harp on. Tom, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions that are informational that I haven't prepped you for. Okay. So <laughs> we'll see how this goes. <laughs> What is the digit through which students should have all the math, the multiplication tables memorized? Well, uh, I, I would agree with the, um, the standard that Highlands here sets and that is 12. Yeah. Um, with a, with, a, with a desire to see most, if not all students go to 20. Okay. Um, and, and which takes a lot of discipline mm. because in the mid to high teens, it, it gets, uh, not only is are the tables a lot longer, but, but, um, they're not very, you, you don't use them as often. Right. Uh, but, but, um, but I think that again, I think that's important in developing number sense and how to, how to, um, work with numbers. Sure. When it comes to, I think what people would call manipulatables, manipulatives, do you advocate for them? in the, in the lowest grades and primary, or do you think that students or classroom should be working away from them? I'm going to need you to explain what that is. Any kind of object that represents numbers to help a student uh, count. Or even like counting on fingers. Yeah, I see. Uh, I've not given that a whole lot of thought. Um, Martin or Paul, do you guys have an opinion on manipulatives? I think it's, this is a little bit more of a pedagogical question than a pure math yeah, question. I mean, I think it's, it's, helpful and say the preschool, junior kindergarten, early kindergarten range, but then you need to get away from it because it needs to become a mental thing, mm -hmm. not a physical thing. But I think that's a, a, a recognition that, that children start very concrete and move to the abstract. But I think by the time we're saying you're sitting down in a classroom and you're working on these things, or you're sitting down at a kitchen table and you're, you're starting to work on writing the number five, then at that point, you know, yeah, we've got five ducks on the page for you to color in, Right. And it's, it's great to, you know, pull out five apples and say, this, when we say five, we mean this many, right? But you quickly get away from that as soon as you start talking about, when you move from recognition of numbers to actually using numbers to add or subtract. So would you recommend like a third grade teacher, for instance, they're teaching eight-year-old students in an ideal situation, is that teacher like calling out a student who starts counting on their hand or no? Uh, I would discourage it. Yes. Yeah, and, I mean, you're, 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 you're moving from the concrete to the abstract. So what the manipulatives are doing are helping you with that concrete stage. But by the time you should be out of the concrete stage, you shouldn't need manipulatives. Anymore. Yeah. But, but at the same time, when you're, when you're learning, you know, fractions and percents in fifth or sixth grade, right? Like it's great to put up a pie diagram and, and, and mm -hmm. cut it into four and show mm -hmm. this is what we're talking about. Like, but, but again, we're going from in that particular case from a concrete into the abstract. So as soon as we understand, okay, this is what a fraction is, that a, that a half is greater than a fourth, right? Even though it's a it's a two instead of a four, right? Once we understand that, then we need to start being used to the language of mathematics, what Tom's talking about, and doing that without the 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 crutch of that concrete. Right. I mean, and I've taught logic for many years, and and so when you're trying to explain that that uh, process, which is 
abstract. You start out with some a few concrete things, and you start out with uh, I use Euler's diagrams with mm. circles and where the circles intersect, and coloring where the circles mm. to indicate what the conclusion is saying mm. with these two premises that are represented by the circles. But that just at the start, so that you can just basically get the conceptual thing and maybe see it in your mind that way. And you don't have to do Euler's diagrams for every argument. And if you can't leave those behind, then there's a problem. Mm. So yeah, yeah, yeah. The concept of quantity is is really what what you're trying to get at early on, right? And I think that um, helping early students or real early K one two to see the um, the correlation between the concept of quantity and the world in which we live, which is quantifiable, right? How many items is that? What is it, what do we mean by how many, right? Um, I think that that can be that's very helpful. Um, but yes, uh, we we need to be able to um, to work with these ideas in the abstract. Um, yeah. So I, I, in my own house, um, I discourage hand counting for sure. Um, and, and really it's from the beginning. Um, yeah. Speed drills have been an emphasis in recent years at Highlands Latin School. What's the benefit of focusing on speed drills? How important are they? And what are the, do you have a sense of the goals that students should be achieving in speed drills in the lower, in the lower grades? Um, I would say that speed drills are a, um, an indicator of ability when it comes to number sense, right? So it's not just memorization. Um, it's uh, how, how quickly can you work with these numbers? Mm -hmm. So my favorite kind of speed drill is a mixed operation um, where they're getting mm -hmm. hit with add, subtract, multiply, divide randomly um, with numbers less than 20, 20 or under. Because, because now it's, if you give them a sheet full of addition, they can be kind of in addition mode or multiplication. I'm in multiplication mode, but if every time I look at one, I have to pay attention to the operation and I have to recall, or I have to work with it um, quickly. Uh, I, the, the, the speed indicates the level of sense that you have to work with numbers. Accuracy would be, you know, how well do you know the facts and, or, or, um, or just how, how good are you? Uh, how good are you at working with the, the numbers? Um, so I love speed drills. Um, I think they should, students should do them every day. Um, and, and they should be doing hundred problem speed drills. Sure. Uh, that's what I, that actually, that's what I did in school was hundred problem speed drills. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because one of the things that, uh, Morris Klein says is that it, because you want to, you want to do this in a way that it's automatic, that, that those mm -hmm. basic functions that you're using as the tools to understand the higher, that you, that you just make those automatic. So what, what Klein says in why Johnny can't add is that um, is that the the goal is not to think more about arithmetic. The goal is not to think about arithmetic yeah. at all, because <laughs> that's a tool. You don't want to think. Yeah. You don't need to think about. It. You you mm -hmm. want it to be automatic. Yeah. Well, and I would like to push back on this statement that um, I think the way you phrased it was Highlands has been focusing on speed drills recently yeah. or something along those lines. Speed drills has always been mm -hmm. a part of the Highlands <laughs> mathematics education. Yeah. It's within the past few years, we've said we're going to develop our own. Sure. And in that sort of process of, of doing that and reevaluating, I think we've ramped it up. Yeah. But it's uh, but Cheryl, from the very beginning, mm -hmm. was this is a part of basic arithmetic education. You just can't, yeah. it, you know, it, without that that facility, right, where you, you, you know, it, it takes years to train a, a child to the point where they can they can do those operations without thinking about them, mm. right? And, uh, you know, I mean, 
I forgive me. I'm going to bring up the farm. Uh-oh. Right. But there's, there is a, you know, there's a common practice on how to measure how big, how much, how many pounds a pig weighs by measuring around their girth, multiplying that. I, th- I think you square it and then you take the the length from tail to ears and like multiply that by four multiply, or no, you multiply that by the square of the girth and then you divide it all by four. Something along those lines. Well, I mean, those are operations that you have to know what you're doing, yeah. right? I mean, when you take a, a steer to the to the processor, well, you know he may be 1,200 pounds going in, but then you're going to lose 40%. And the, the, the processor tell you this, you're going to lose 40% when you, you know, just, you know, before we even hang it. And then once you hang it, when you, we cut it up into finished, finished cuts of meat, you're going to lose another 30%. And you start going. And I mean, you need to, in that moment, you have to be able to make a decision of, okay, this is going to be worth my while or it's not, or I, you know, I'm going to have a lot less meat than I promised to my customers like that. This is not just for the academics, right? And the, the, in everybody's going to need to be able to make those sorts of mental math judgments on the fly. I had a, I had a, a crew of uh, Amish guys come out and build a sunroom for me uh, several years back. And I drew up the, what I wanted it to look like. And I, and he said, no, he, they just come out and said, what do you want us to do? Um, uh, and I showed him the picture. I said, can you do that? And it, this is a, this is a, a, a five wall structure, a cutoff hmm. octagon essentially uh, coming out from the house and with a, with a hip roof that comes out halfway, the, 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 the peak of it comes out halfway and it slopes down five different ways so you have these odd angles. In addition to that, it was built on a deck that had been, and the deck was not was off by several inches in several places. <laughs> so this, you know, and and I said, can you can you can you do that? He said, Yeah, I can do that. So they start working, and they get out there. They build it in two days, and they're out there. And I was very curious about how they did this because these guys are they only have an eighth grade education in 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 Amish country. So they're and they're barking numbers. You got a guy down on the ground. He's he's got a saw and, he, and and they're barking the numbers out. They're just it's like a language in and of itself. And it was almost like singing. Mm. And it, that really hit me mm. <laughs> at that point that these these guys have an eighth grade education, and they can get out there and and with odd angles. These the way these, this, the hip roof is coming down, and and they know what to do. They know exactly what number to assign to this one angle and all this stuff and, and uh, doing it with an eighth grade math education. Well, you know what I always say, Martin, is measure 10 times, cut 15 times. <laughs> <laughs> so that's about way. Yeah, I agree. I'm, so I'm with you. Let's move on from arithmetic. In, in algebra, that's, that's typically where our students go. There's been um, a, a question that we've been talking a lot about recently, just am, among ourselves, is that pre-algebra year. Mm. Um, Tom, it seems like one of the issues is that pre-algebra is some algebra and some not algebra. But what does that exactly mean? What's the not yeah. algebra parts of pre-algebra? Well, it's basically uh, your higher level arithmetic. So uh, fraction arithmetic, which is perennially challenging for students, along with percents and decimals and word problems, which are also, which tend to be perennially challenging for students. Sure. So what, what pre-algebra is, is basically a finishing arithmetic mm. in addition to introducing um, some of the, the uh, abstract concepts that they're going to see in algebra. 
Sure. Um, <laughs> one of the things that's that's apparent here as well is the fact that um, that is is the reality of thanks to Rene Descartes analytical geometry, which is basically the marriage of algebraic notation mm-hmm. and geometry. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know what I do. Um, one of the things I do with students is um, I'll write a three on the board, and then I'll put a dot on the board, three units from the origin on a number line, and I'll say these are the same thing. This squiggly line that we say is a three mm. and this point, this geometric symbol, which actually is dimensionless, are the same thing. They represent the same quantity. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, uh, w- what that does is it brings geometry into the mix. So mm. really what's happening in pre-algebra is we're starting to be introduced to geometric symbolism as well with the point and the line and, mm. and some kind of reference system. Uh, all great things. But, uh, but this is one of the things that I've considered in in my own thinking is, um, is the proper place for geometry in the curriculum. Do we do it after algebra or before? Um, if we do it before, what does it look like? Because they don't have algebra yet. Mm -hmm. And the, um, the way we teach geometry in, in kind of this, the modern world is, is it's very algebraic. Um, and so, uh, that's another question. Um, so, so, uh, and then, and then algebra proper really doesn't doesn't have to have any kind of graphs in it right if right. all we're if all we're doing is logically determining the um, value of an unknown we can do that without graphing um, but the graph brings a certain concreteness to the process mm. that is really helpful for students right what's the solution for this uh, this linear equation well it's all the points on this line mm-hmm. right um, which are act- is actually an infinite number of solutions uh, so all of these things, um, there there is a sense in which they kind of start to marry together, post arithmetic, and I'm just what I'm advocating for would be um, whether wh- whatever we do at sixth grade, seventh grade, just that we are are the the goal at the end of this curriculum is a student who who is a master of the arithmetic skills mm-hmm. because now I can do I can do something with this kid because um, what I don't have to do is spend weeks reviewing fraction arithmetic. Right. You know, and stuff like right. that. Like, yeah. hey, let's start let's start looking let's start learning about the Cartesian plane and how geometric symbolism and algebraic notation um cohere and, and things along those lines. Uh, I've always wondered in you know, this question and and, and you th- this is not a question which has a universal solution that everybody agrees about in terms of when you teach geometry, mm-hmm. uh where in the sequence you, you do that. Um but as somebody who's taught logic, I've always wondered, well, given that you're doing proofs in geometry and you're having to use logic to do the proofs, wouldn't it be nice if you had mastered logic before you did it? Mm. I, I, I've always wondered, why would you teach geometry? Because I, I crashed and burned in geometry in the eighth grade because I could not understand the proofs. I had not mm. had logic. And they just expected you to know it. And I, don't, I, I never could get that. And it was only after I had learned logic itself that I realized, oh, that's what they—that's what they were assuming I knew in my geometry class. So I've always—I've always wondered about where that—that that shouldn't you have logic and geometry in some sort of? It seems accident. like a coincidence that you also wrote a logic program that you sell. Is that correct? I forgot about that. Yeah, um, the great one I hear. Right. The, the, another problem is the summer break. Mm. So we've we've been talking about how. Um, the skills um, in mathematics uh, need to be exercised. 
which is why the books call the problems exercises. You can make a, a very clean analogy with physical training. Uh, and, and unfortunately, when you take three months off from doing something, you forget it all. Sure. And, and th- this is a, you can look at the textbooks and see that the first third of every year is review. Mm-hmm. We're just going to do the same things we did. We ended the year on last year. And uh, I, I don't know about you all, you guys, well, your kids are, your kids young, but uh, my kids do math all summer long, mm. um, every day. Well, not every day, but, uh, but they're drilling all summer long because I don't want your skills to atrophy. I want you to be able to pick up next year where we left off and make progress. Um, well, of course, they've tried to solve this problem by these, uh, alter- these, these alternative calendars they've come up with mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. that instead of the one, instead of that big long break where they forget everything, they take a bunch of shorter breaks so they don't forget. Well, it turns out that they actually forget things after like three weeks or something. Sure. So, so now what you, what you did was you went from a, a, a place where they forgot it once to where they forget it three times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, th- this is, um, you know, so if you look, if, say we looked at the Prentice Hall algebra curriculum, mm-hmm. one and two, mm-hmm. right? So what they do, what we do in algebra one is we introduce you to a bunch of new concepts, systems of equations, quadratic equations, and, and things like this. And we kind of touch them. And then in algebra two, the next year, we come back the first third of the year is basically um, basic algebra. And then the rest of the year is now we're going to touch on those, all those things deeper again. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why uh, the way that I would want to approach algebra would be a two year course where we introduce a topic and exercise it and master it. And then we move on to the next mm-hmm. one. Right. So instead of touching systems in algebra one and only doing two equations, two variables, um, and then saving three equations, three variables for algebra two, uh, I want to introduce linear first degree relations, solve systems of equations. This is how you do that. And here's how you do it with any, basically any number of equations with that same number of variables. Yeah, and let's master that. Okay, yeah. you got that. Now let now let's move on to second degree relations, quadratics. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I think of the motivation for writing math books that way. And I've never spoken with John Saxon. I don't know him, no relation. But I think the motivation for the way that they wrote those traditional textbooks and Prentice Hall would be this ways. Or it sounds like it's not this way, but where they introduce a concept and they scatter the rest of the concept throughout the rest, you know, what we would call spiral approach is because of the true cognitive principle that you remember things better when you review them the closest to the point at which you would forget them, right? So you, you scatter concepts so that you are forced to recall, but you don't have to do that it, without explaining the full concept, right? It seems like what you're saying is first master the concept, then review it rather than introduce the concept and then review it. Yeah. And that would be well, the difference. And math is a cumulative um, um, area of study, right? So when I say leave it behind, what I don't mean is we're never going to see that again, yeah. right? We're just going to see it in a different context, right? So when we go to second degree relations, we're going to solve systems there too. Sure. But you already know how to solve systems. You've already mastered that. So Well, and one of the about review and forgetting is, you know, so if you, if you forget uh, this stuff after a month um, and that's a problem. So you, you deal with that in school by not having a gap that long, say, um, or having fewer of them. What about, what happens when you graduate and 
you don't do math and then you just forget it. So why did you learn it in the first place? Sure. Okay. And I bring that up because aren't we really looking for something? I mean, un- unless you go into engineering or mathematics in some professional aspect, you're, you're, you're not going to actually have the need for these specific, you know, some of these specific things, but haven't you, even if you don't do that, which is most of us, um, then the question is, so why, why should we teach everybody math if the vast majority of our students are not going to go into, into mathematical uh, professions? And I, I, I have an answer for that, but I was just curious. Oh, well, yeah, this is a nice segue into, um, into uh, aptitude and, um, and the fact that, so I would say two things. Number one, um, that we've, when we talked about this earlier, that uh, there's a sense in which all students need to be mathematical students because math is a is a is a feature or a characteristic of the created world, and and we live in this world. If we want to be able to describe it, to understand it, we need to understand math. Um, now, one 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 of the problems with modern math education is that um, because of, uh, of of a modern emphasis on STEM um, in uh, in vocations. Uh, and and maybe the elevation of those things. Uh, what we do is we um, we our math classes are computationally heavy and mm. conceptually light. So I'm going to teach you how to solve this kind of a problem. Uh, you don't really need to worry about understanding what a derivative is. Just can you do one, right? And that I think is a problem. Mm. Um, so I'm going to introduce a lot of concepts. I'm going to throw them at you fast, and I'm going to basically turn you into a calculator. Mm. Now, when you learn math like that. And you stop, yeah, it's dumped. Um, and so when I, you know, when I was done with undergrad, I was a physics undergrad, did a lot of math. Uh, I didn't do any math again for over ten years. And when it, so when I came back into this setting, I had to do some review, and uh, and I did a lot of reading, and and a lot of the reading was more conceptual, which was very helpful to me because I got a very computationally heavy um, education. And so um, so I think that. Conceptually speaking, we want every student to be a math student. We want you to understand the quantitative nature of of the world and how things work, and and how to describe what goes on in the world. Um, and then, but but Martin's right that we we we, ha- we see varying levels of aptitude. Sure, and that's okay. Um, I think that for the high math aptitude students, maybe like I was, uh, th- those STEM fields are exactly the kind of things you should do. Sure. Um, and, and for the rest, uh, what's the value of learning math if you're not a high math aptitude student? Well, again, I would just say we don't want to think about math as a means to an end. Earlier, Paul said, um, you know, you're going to use these things in real life. And that's true, but that's not why we educate all of our students in math. The reason we do it is because of the nature of the universe and of the, uh, if, if Mitchell was here, I know what he would say. Um, that that education is not just content delivery; it's virtue formation, right. and the discipline required to learn mathematics is uh, is is high and will serve you the rest of your life, even if you never do another math problem. Sure. Any final comments on on teaching math that we've left out on the table? I don't have any either. So on well, that, what about Martin's answer? Well, I. Apparently Shane wasn't interested in it. Uh, <laughs> no, I, uh, 
I, I was going to say, you know, for one thing, you do retain some things that you can recall if necessary. For example, when, when I'm driving, uh, we take a family trip out to Kansas every year, and my wife never realized this, but when I'm driving, I'm sitting there and I'm looking at the, at the mileage signs, and I'm calculating the whole time how long it's going to take to get to the next city. You know, uh, 130 miles I'm going 65 miles an hour. We'll be there in two hours. I'm I'm constantly mm. doing. I didn't I didn't even realize I was really doing it, but I was doing it all the time. My wife never knew I was doing it till just recently. <laughs> uh, and so you you do you do have you do retain the more simple practical things that most of us, even when we're not uh, in mathematical professions, do use in everyday life. So you 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 get that for one. But the other is, I think you just um, you're a human being. And you've been given this mind, and it is quantitative and qualitative. And I think it's your your moral responsibility to develop that as as well as you can. And so, just I think even if you can't retain the specifics, you have created capacities in your mind that you can use, even really sometimes on non mathematical things. I mean, but but there is a quantitative world out there, and and you're able to think about things differently. I mean, that's that's part of what dis- disciplines do, uh, is is just open a wider window on the world. And I think math does that on the quantitative side, just like literature does it on the qualitative side. And I think just in the same vein, right? The knowledge is worthwhile knowing for its own sake. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. right, right. And this is why we want our kids to learn arithmetic, so that I don't have to answer the question. How long until we get there? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Look at the oh, mileage yeah. sign and figure it out. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And I have said that very thing. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you guys for having this conversation. I've enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Classical Etc. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you liked this episode, consider leaving us a positive review and sharing it with a friend. A huge thank you to the Memoria Press Podcast Network for hosting our show. Be sure to check out all the great podcasts there. As always, I'm Shane Saxon. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Memoria Press Podcast Network, providing a classical Christian perspective on the world of education. To learn more about Memoria Press, visit us at memoriapress.com. To connect with us, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.